the Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Listen, <laughs> for the word of the Lord. Shout out. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob, their sins. Day after day, they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down like the head, to bow down the head like a bulrush? And to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Or is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice. To undo the thongs of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. And the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted. Then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be like noonday. 
The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairers of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. The word of the Lord. What does it mean to be the repairer of the breach today? In these cherished United States, when our theology is littered with notions of personal prosperity and polluted with power ploys. What does it mean to be the restorer of streets to live in, in a nation that seems ignorant and indifferent to the biblical understanding of communal salvation? Isaiah, in the fifth century BCE, was speaking to a small, fractured Israelite nation. His society was suffering the effects of extreme societal trauma. They had witnessed the exploitation and destruction of the temple, the seat of their religious and cultural life. Some, many, in fact, had been deported they were separated often from more family, uh, vulnerable family members. They lived as aliens on foreign soil, subject to laws and mores that may have flown in the face of their own ideals. And the possibility of returning to and rebuilding the way of life they had known seemed distant at best. In his effort to give the people health and hope, the prophet conjures images of repair and healing and restoration. Given that this was a nation of people for whom worship was, 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 was central, Isaiah's words were, would have satisfied their deep longing for both a new earthly reality and an eternal vision in which drama and discord would be no more, in which all members of society would rise together and in which God's people would come home to find themselves repatriated under the watchful gaze of Yahweh. The prophet's aspirational words offer a powerful redirect to people of faith still today. 
His words speak into our current national and global discord. They conjure a new reality for us in which healing and wholeness would become an overarching national priority. His words address everyday wrongs, both personal and private ones, and those that are uh, 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 systemic in nature. As in the case of Mrs. Henrietta Lacks. According to the World Health Organization website, Henrietta Lacks was a black American woman and a young mother who died from cervical cancer on October 4th, 1951, just eight months after her diagnosis. She was 31 years old. Although her life was cut short, her legacy lives on through an immortal line of cells known as HeLa, H-E-L-A, HeLa, taken from the first two letters of her first name, Henrietta, and the first two letters of her last name, Lax, HeLa. During her treatment, researchers took samples of Mrs. Lax's tumor without her knowledge or consent, those cells proved immortal because of their unique ability to reproduce themselves in a laboratory. By the 1960s, scientists joked that HeLa were so robust that they could probably survive in a kitchen sink drain or on a doorknob. American and Russian scientists even managed to grow HeLa in space. Since then, Mrs. Lax's cells have been commercialized and distributed across the globe, unknown to her family for two decades. Contributing to nearly 75,000 studies. Yes, 75,000 studies. Henrietta Lax's cells, H-E-L-A, have paved the way for advancements in everything from polio vaccines to medications for HIV and AIDS and breakthroughs in in vitro fertilization. Yes, HeLa cells are even helpful with regard to COVID. Despite the global impact of HeLa, H-E-L-A, the sad irony is that Mrs. Lax's disease was treated experimentally, as were many black women and men in that era, while she was confined to a segregated ward of Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, which, by the way, is one of the most segregated cities in America, and where Mrs. Lax's descendants struggled to get access to the very health care that their mother's cells helped make possible. Medical writer and biographer Rebecca Skloot, in her amazing book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, I commend it to you if you've not read it, describes advances resulting from HeLa. Even more, she describes the generational trauma experienced by the Lacks family 
and the societal breach that allowed all of this to unfold as it did. In 2010, Mrs. Skloot created the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, whose mission is to help individuals who have made important contributions to scientific research without personally benefiting from those contributions, particularly those used in research without their knowledge or consent. Based on the proliferation of HELA, H-E-L-A, the Henrietta Lacks Foundation is utilizing its resources to heal, H-E-A-L. And perhaps most importantly, this foundation is using its resources to promote whole wholeness and to help repair the breach. I'm a big fan of foundations like these. Yet as a minister of word and sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, where is the church on issues like these? What is the church's role and responsibility and, and where is our presence? Of course, this is the question one of my role models asks. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail writes, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and practices of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than humans. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated, love this phrase. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. And far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and sometimes even vocal sanction of things as they are. I don't know. 
Maybe it's that the, the church doesn't really appreciate the depth and, and, and breadth and brilliant complexity that goes into healing work. Or maybe it's that we don't recognize that a breach has occurred, that historic breaches have occurred and continue to occur. You know, modern uh, usage of the word repair, of course, means to fix. You have something broken, you, you, you repair it. But there's another definition of the word. It's archaic, but it's relevant for our conversation today. It means to go to or to frequent. As in, Paul repaired to lovely Mount Pleasant, South Carolina from his home city of Atlanta, Georgia, or they repaired to the home office to attend the Zoom meeting. <laughs> What's relevant here is that the definition is derived from a Latin root, which literally means, I used this word earlier, to repatriate, to return to one's home country to send someone to their home country or to restore someone, to restore someone, to restore someone in their own home or land. Now let's, if you'll just bear with me, let's play with this textually using Isaiah's words. If, if, you, if you repatriate if you repatriate those who suffer injustice, if you repatriate those who labor under the thongs of the yoke, if you repatriate the oppressed, if you repatriate the hungry, repatriate the naked, and even repatriate yourself to your own kin with whom, some, uh, with whom you may be uh, experiencing a broken relationship, then, friends, your light shall break forth like the dawn and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Then your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Now, I'm the first to admit that uh, this may not be the most elegant and certainly it's not the most accurate rendering of uh, the prophet's words originally written in, 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 in Hebrew, but I'm standing by it. And you know why? Because I contend that the time is now for the church to rethink its mission, to actually reformulate its sense of purpose and mission. And I am convinced that without a reformulation, a comprehensive 
reformulation of what it is that God is calling us to in this moment that these some 200 million professing Christians in these United States will never solve the problem of 35 million hungry that we, 200 million professing Christians, will never solve the problem of 2.3 million incarcerated, that we will never solve the problem of 500,000 homeless, and that we will not even solve the problem of 300 children separated somewhere from their families around the U.S.-Mexico border. And I am convinced that without a reformulation of our mission, we will continue to jump to ill-timed, ill-fated, and insulting conversations about reconciliation. I am convinced that without a reformulation, we will never be able to embark on the kind of comprehensive systemic institutional work necessary for us to achieve the vision, the national vision that we speak of. And I am convinced that without a reformulation, we will continue to subscribe to a charitable model, which is fine, but which is insufficient in that people who have stuff give to people who don't. Another prophet, Micah says it this way, and it's so elegant. He asked, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? In 2002, Iconic actor Denzel Washington made his directorial debut with the movie Antoine Fisher. The movie is based on the real life of a sailor who, prone to violent outbursts, is sent to a naval psychiatrist for help. Refusing at first to open up, the young man eventually begins to reveal a horrific childhood. Through the guidance of his new doctor, the young man confronts his painful past and begins a quest to find the family he never knew. In one of the final scenes in that film, spoiler alert, please, the young man enters the home of the family matriarch. It's a beautiful scene. He enters the home and is greeted by his biological family. He is warmly welcomed. That is to say, he is repatriated by at least three generations of kin. 
Now, I know it's a movie, it's glamorized, it's produced, it's got a soundtrack and all of that, but uh, let me tell you, when that old woman, beautiful old woman, that family matriarch, extends her hand and beckons young Antoine into the heart of the home, when she stretches her hand and beckons that young man to the family table where uh, an, an incredible feast has been prepared, well, I'm, I'm telling you, it is, it is sacred, it is holy, it is, it is sacramental. All that's missing are the words of, of institution. This is the joyful feast of God. They, you shall come from north, south, east, west to sit at table in the kingdom, in the reign of God. Take, eat. This is my body, breached for you. And friends, somehow in that moment, I know it's a movie, get carried away. It's just somehow in that moment, you just know that Antoine Fisher is being H-E-A-L-E-D. Healed. And so it is, friends. This, I believe, is our mandate, Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church. I pray you will join with me in accepting it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.